welcome to the Think MHK podcast presented by the Manhattan Area Chamber of Commerce. On this podcast, you will hear about a variety of local matters pertaining to the business community. You also hear from local business owners to hear their story and gain valuable business insights. Thanks for tuning in today. We have a very special guest with us today on the Think MHK podcast, someone that everyone will know, our esteemed senior senator from the state of Kansas, U.S. Senator Jerry Moran. Senator Moran, welcome to the Think MHK podcast. Jason, it's really good to be with you and to be with the Manhattan Chamber, and I appreciate the relationship we have and look forward to having a conversation with those who are interested in what we have to say today. Yeah. Now, you know, a lot of times we talk about issues and those kind of things, but we really are today wanting to just learn more about you as a person and why you decided to get into this career and and then eventually talk about why you decided to make Manhattan your home. So, uh, we're not going to talk about specific issues in Washington. So if anybody's listening, thinking that we're going to hear about certain positions you have on on uh, issues, that's not what this is about. We're, we're going to get to learn we'll about for the town hall meetings. That's right. All absolutely. Right. So I read a little bit about you in, in getting prepared for this. and and uh, But we always like to hear people's stories about where they came from, where they grew up, and, uh, and what did, how did those experiences shape who you are today? Jason, in, in at least the way I look at it, there's virtually nothing in my life that would suggest I would grow up to be a United States senator, maybe other than I'm an American, American citizen. We have the opportunities in this country that uh, don't exist lots of places. But I grew up in small town, western Kansas. Uh, my dad was a, an oil field worker. My mom was the lady who paid your light bill to in our little town. And I happened to be one of those kids who was who liked government. That was one of the classes I liked, history. Uh, most of my classmates found that odd, and uh, I, I read a lot. Um, I grew up in, ultimately uh, started kindergarten and graduated from high school in Plainville, a town that's about 2,000 people now, uh, a little bit north of Hayes. And uh, I only, my only source of you know, knowing what's going on in the rest of the world was generally what I read. And I was the kid who sat on the library steps and read those books and saw the rest of the world. I met my congressman when I was in high school. I was the student body president of Plainville High School. And the congressman spoke at a dinner that our uh, student council had organized to raise money for scholarships. He remembered me enough to when I was in college to invite me to come be a, a, an intern, a summer intern in the nation's capital. And I was reluctant to go. I was having a, I'm a first generation college graduate. I was having a good time in college. And uh, my parents were the ones who were smart enough to say, why don't you go experience what Washington, D.C. might show you? Turned out to be the summer of 1974. Turned out to be the summer of Watergate. So I watched President Nixon get impeached. I attended the Peter Rodino Judiciary Committee hearings and uh, lived a moment of American history. And probably the first, not, without, with, not with much seriousness, but gave this thought, maybe someday I could be an elected official. Maybe I could be a member of Congress. And I'd do it slightly different than what I saw that went on in uh, Washington, D.C. in those days. So eventually you um, you left your hometown and went to law school. What made you decide to to get into law? So I have a, I have a degree in, uh, in economics. Uh, I returned home and actually returned close to home and was a, a small town banker for several years in a couple of banks and worked on an MBA at Fort Hayes State and then decided that law school would be an opportunity for me to have a better career. I mean, one of the things that a law degree gives you is the opportunity to live where you want to live. And uh, I don't have a farm, didn't have a farm to return to, didn't have a family business to return to, but I knew that I wanted to be a part of a community 
uh, wanted to be a part of Kansas, and that degree uh, gave me that opportunity. It's also a degree that lots of people pursue when they don't know what else they want to do. And um, I, I found law school uh, compelling, enjoyable. I made some of my best friends in life, but really was designed to be able to return. And although I practiced law in Kansas City for two or three years after I graduated from law school in a big downtown Kansas City firm, uh, I returned not to Plainville, but to Hayes and joined a Went from the largest law firm in Kansas City to the largest law firm in Hayes, the difference of about 450 lawyers uh, difference, and just became a part of a community. Uh, got involved in the Chamber of Commerce, um, was the vice president of the Chamber of Commerce in Hayes, never could get elected to be the chairman. So uh, I've not experienced leading a chamber, but got involved in the daycare board and the library board and the, the uh, Lions Club and the Rotary Club and to do the things that most people, many people do across our state when they live in a community, they engage. And uh, I did, and uh, it was very valuable to be meaningful to me. I liked the idea of being involved in a community where you can make a difference. I'll tell you what, when you decide to step away from politics, we will get you in the rotation to be chairman of the chamber here in Manhattan. So just so you can check that off on, on your accomplishments. I've said the only uh, the only uh, civic board I'll serve on uh, when you all throw me out of office is that I'll go back to being on the library board. There was no controversy that ever occurred while I was on the library board, except for whether the Madonna sex book should be on the shelf. And I was going to say, I think that might've changed a little bit in today's, it has today's political times. Um, so you decided to get into politics and, and run for the Kansas Senate in 1988. What was the reason behind that? So it, it really, there was, I mean, I indicated I'd, I'd been an intern as a, you know, as a, 20-year-old in the nation's capital, there wasn't a plan to the way that this has turned out for me. Uh, but I, I did the things that people do in a community, as I just indicated. And it occurred to me that I thought I could do a good job representing uh, a nine-county district in western central Kansas. And But I, I lived – this is something that people don't generally recognize today. Ellis County, Hayes, was a solidly democratic uh, community. Uh, not a Republican in the courthouse, uh, not a Republican elected the state legislature in 25 years. And I ran against a Democratic incumbent and won a, a, a state Senate seat by 141 votes out of 26,784. Landslide. Landslide. 50.02% yeah. of the vote. Yeah. And I just, I went to work in Topeka. Incidentally, my, my paths with uh, Manhattan uh, began to firm up then, Lana Olean was my state Senate seatmate. Uh, she was elected the same year and uh, we became friends and seatmates in the state Senate. I, I did what uh, what legislators do, went to work and tried to make a difference for my my constituents and for my state. Uh, one thing led to another and I was elected the, the, uh, the vice president of the Senate and then I was elected the majority leader of the state Senate. None of which I'd intended to do as, as I, I was there for, for two terms and concluded I needed to get home and earn a living. And we had a family. Our kids were six and eight. Kelsey and Alex were six and eight when I was elected and uh, needed to spend time trying to put food on the table more than what the state legislature would allow. It does take a lot of time for very little reward, um, at least fiscal rewards. There's, there a, there's a lot of reward. Yeah, correct. So I've happened this week to, to run into uh, Congressman Tracy Mann, and he's home and was talking about all of his 
town halls that he's doing. And when we talked about the size of, of uh, the big first, so the first district state of Kansas, you were a representative representing that district. Um, what are the challenges of having a district that large and how were you able to stay close to your constituents? Well, the state Senate did then lead to, there was a vacancy. Senator Roberts, then Congressman Roberts announced he was running for the U.S. Senate. He had forewarned me and said, you need to get your running shoes on because in the future, I'm going to run for the United States Senate. And we had kind of a family discussion and concluded that we'd try this. And I got elected to what was then probably a 64 county district. It grew with reapportionment to 69 counties. So you represent really almost three-fourths of the geography of Kansas. It was everything. I, I represented Wabunsee County West. Which now goes to Lawrence. Which so, now yeah, goes to yeah, Lawrence. Isn't that crazy? It's a sign of what needs what's, what's happening in rural places across Kansas. It takes more geography all the time to get the same number of people. So when you divide the state equally, it takes a lot of space. Uh, Salina was my largest city, uh, and no one in Washington, D.C. could fathom a congressional district that 40,000 people, population of Salina, was your urban area, and it was. And so I, I represented the vast majority of the, the rural areas of, of Kansas, and I started the practice or continued the practice of having a town hall meeting in every county every year, and I would do them Mostly in August, because Congress is generally out of session for about four weeks in August. I think it goes back to the history of uh, the, the nature of Washington, D.C. and the history of Congress. Without air conditioning, Washington, D.C. is a miserable place to be in August. And so there was this always this annual recess. Got to the point in which it hadn't rained in Kansas for eight years and it was 112 degrees and I was doing town hall meetings and I had concluded there had to be a better time to do this. So I kind of shifted around and started doing them around Christmas. And, you know, I, I talked about growing up, uh, being raised in Plainville. Sometimes people will ask me, so what do I need to do? What degree do I need? What does it take if you want to run for office? And I attribute my, um, whatever skills I have I mean, I would say, first of all, it takes like caring for people and being genuine and being able to demonstrate to people that you care about them and that you're, that you mean it. It's not just a, a fraud. And it also takes the ability to have a conversation uh, with people, to shake a hand, look them in the eye. I don't think it necessarily, at least with me, comes naturally. But as a kid, I worked in a hardware store, uh, then called Coast to Coast, now a true value store. And I would, you know, people walk in the door and you introduce yourself and they need some bicycle part and you're trying to figure out how to solve their problem and uh, having the ability to communicate and have a conversation. And that continued with 69 town hall meetings, uh, one in each county. And we've continued that practice uh, almost as regularly. Uh, COVID uh, diminished the, the frequency of those and it's now they're returning. Yeah, I, was, I think I was reading somewhere. Uh, the year before COVID, so I've been 2019, I believe you were, you led the Senate in number of town hall meetings. Is that right? Yes. Uh, and we had, that's true. So no Senator had more town hall meetings than I did in uh, pre prior to COVID. Uh, one of those town hall meetings took place in a town in Northwest Kansas population about, I don't know, 400. I was the only Senator in the country having town hall meetings during the debate about repeal of Obamacare. And so what should have been or could have been a very local town hall meeting with a handful of folks, Palco, Kansas hosted uh, about 400 people from all over Kansas and a few from outside the country, plus the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, CNN, a Dutch television station. Uh, and we had a, a bit of a raucous town hall meeting in a little town. So these things are, they don't always turn out exactly as you expect them to be, 
But it, the point was that even during those contentious, difficult issue times, uh, I've tried and continue to try to, to pay a lot of attention to what Kansans have to say about those issues. I did go back to Palco uh, the next week because I thought, man, the local folks didn't have a chance to say anything. Right. Yeah. I walked Main Street for an hour and went to the convenience store and, oh, Jerry, we're so glad you did that. We we sold all the chicken fried steaks we had. <laughs> uh, we want you to do those more frequently. So economic development. Economic development yeah. with a town hall meeting. So we talked about it briefly, but what were the circumstances that led to you deciding to run for the Senate? Well, again, uh, I had reached kind of the end of my time in the House of Representatives. I was ready to do something different, needed to... Uh, to do a better job of being a husband and a, and a father. Uh, somehow that didn't, uh, I, I hope my kids have benefited from the experiences they've had with a dad who's been gone a lot, but that's still not a perfect kind of way of raising a family. But I was ready to, to end that uh, phase of my, my professional life. And um, the predecessor in the Senate, um, Sam Brownback, announced that he was not running for reelection. He had made a term pledge, a term limit pledge, and lived up to that pledge. And so there was an opening in the United States Senate. And so just as each time I'm ready to walk away, a new opportunity in elective office has kind of opened the door. I ran and, uh, and now three terms, now in my third term, and uh, appreciate the opportunity that Kansans have given me to try to make a difference on their behalf. Well, the good news, at least from your standpoint, from a campaigning, it wasn't a much larger area than you'd already campaigned in as the first district. Right? You know, uh, you mentioned Senator, uh, Congressman Mann. Uh, Tracy was my first intern uh, in my days of being a new congressman. Everybody has had to try to follow this practice of having these town hall meetings uh, in every county. And so that that has a bit preceded me and a bit followed me with others doing the same thing. But it is true. And we've we've elected... United States senators frequently, uh, with the last four United States senators came from Western Kansas. Uh, you know, I think the demographics of our state are changing. That becomes less likely over time. The population is shifting to the east. Uh, about and, and in the last election, 26% of the votes cast in a U.S. Senate race in Kansas came from one county, Johnson. And so Western Kansas is a good place to to live and to raise a family, it has been a good place to come from if you want to run statewide office. And part of that is that most candidates don't want to put in the time to visit every county, every community, and the, the distances that exist out there just make it very difficult for folks to get acquainted. And coming from there and being elected from there gives you an, a leg up, has given you a leg up over a, now a long time of Kansas history going back to Bob Dole. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about it, but but as you pointed out, um, Senator Marshall, you, Senator Roberts, Senator Roberts, and Senator Dole all came out of that district. That's True. pretty remarkable. I hadn't thought about that. So, well, and now you know Manhattan Riley County is part of that part of that district. I always lobbied to have Riley County put in the first district, and Senator Olean was strongly opposed to that and got her way. We, th those decisions are made by the legislature every ten years based upon the census. And uh, I remember offering, I'll move to Keats uh, if you'll put Riley County into the first district. Um, it, it, I always kind of say Manhattan feels like the capital of Western Kansas, it's just because of Kansas State and some of the other things. There, I mean, Manhattan is a, a huge component. I mean, it, it, I don't know what, how Manhattan folks, at least at the time I was 
uh, elected official uh, in the in Congress. They weren't interested in coming into the first district. And there has always been this argument about the fort uh, and Fort Riley and, and Junction City. And, 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 and quite frankly, they added Gary County to the first district. I represented Gary County as a congressman, never, never Riley County. That came came to the district later. Manhattan, and as you say, perhaps because of K-State, but for other reasons. We certainly know a lot of people here who retired from small towns of western Kansas and are important components of Manhattan, just as they were important uh, citizens of their hometowns and places out west. Yeah, we could get off in the weeds on a lot of this demographic issue, but a lot of the growth of Manhattan over the last decade and a half has been in retirement age. And that's, I don't think that's a coincidence. I think you see a lot of that. I've complained to lots of people who were community leaders in small towns that I represented in Western Kansas. They were moving to Manhattan. Like you can't leave. We need you. And then I'm here. And and we'll talk about that in a minute. So um, I want to go back a little bit to some of your time in Congress, but we talked about you being recognized as, as one of the leading uh, senators for town hall meetings, but, but I consistently read in a lot of the bio information that that is out on you that that you are recognized fairly regularly on someone who's effective in getting bills passed which in my opinion is what you should hope that your congressman is really good at but sometimes i think congress people don't have that idea they're they're there for other reasons but why do you think you've been successful doing that look i start with the premise that um, my ideas are not always necessarily going to be the right ones Start with the premise that other people have ideas that they believe are the right right answer to an issue. Uh, certainly believe that God created all of us and everybody's worthy of our respect. And we look for ways to find, I mean, the jo- let, me, let me finish that sentence. We look for ways to find common ground with people that you may not normally find common ground with. And the joy of being a, a legislator comes with from actually legislating. And you're right, today's politics, sometimes it seems like the, the fight is the desired outcome as compared to uh, the passage of a piece of legislation or the solution to a problem. My satisfaction comes more from finding, putting people together and finding a way to get something done. It takes 60 votes in the United States Senate to pass a piece of legislation. There aren't 60 Democrats, there aren't 60 Republicans. So the reality is there is no bill that becomes law in the absence of people working together and finding some place that they can make it make that happen there are certain issues that there's you know virtually no room to to compromise on but the vast majority of things that you deal with in the nation's capital in congress and legislation are things that someplace there's a sweet spot if people are operating with the right kind of attitude and approach and want to get something done so is there a particular initiative or several initiatives maybe that, that of which you're the most proud of your time in Congress, or maybe even going back to the, to the Kansas legislature? You know, um, first of all, I would say that uh, there's a lot of staff involved in my life, uh, and we hire mostly Kansans who do really good jobs and come from places across our state that care a lot about their hometowns and the hometown people and the home state people. And so almost every success, I'd say every success, that we have comes from people who help me accomplish what we're talking about. And then I would say that most of the satisfaction still comes from what we call casework or somebody bringing us a problem in their own lives, their own family, their own business. And can you, can you help us get out of the, the, the fix that we're in, the, the problem that we're having? And it could be 
somebody whose social security check is missing in the mail, could be a veteran who can't get uh, care and treatment from the Department of Veterans Affairs. It's things that people, I mean, at any one time, we have hundreds of those kind of circumstances going on. And people I don't think of it, don't think, think this way, but often the most satisfying things we do is helping an individual as compared to some big passage of piece of legislation. We had a lot of success and it was a very bipartisan effort on a veterans bill last late last year called the PACT Act for the first time in a comprehensive way dealing with Vietnam veterans who experienced uh, tremendous health challenges as a result of exposure to Agent Orange and to Iraq and Afghanistan veterans who experienced the same kind of toxic exposure due to burn pits. And it stands out as one of those things that it was a multi-year process to get there. And it's been something that in, in my in my time in the Senate, it's a multi, a couple year process of getting there. But people have been working on this issue since Vietnam War. So that it stands out as one of the uh, meaningful sat, uh, items of satisfaction. And I will follow up since you brought it up. Um, I've had the opportunity to live in four states and work with, I don't know, 20 or so uh, Congress people. And your staff is by far the best of any staff I've worked with. So, And I'm, and I'm not just saying that because Kristen Little sitting in the room with us, but uh, in, in all honesty, it is they are the most responsive and effective staffs I've ever worked with. I very much appreciate that and you saying that. And I believe it to, I, I, I don't know how to compare it to everybody else, but I know that I have great people who care a lot and work hard. And I would highlight for our, our, our listeners, we have an office in Manhattan. We have offices in Manhattan, Hayes, Garden City, Pittsburgh, uh, Olathe, and Wichita. Uh, our office in Manhattan is uh, uh, one that, uh, it's the one that I've spent any time in uh, because of living here. And we certainly care about this community and want to be helpful in, in specific ways to, to an individual, but also for people who want to complain about a vote I cast or encourage us to vote a different way on something in the future. Okay, so you brought it up a couple of times, but on a personal note, you and your wife moved to Manhattan about a decade ago. Why did you make the move, and what do you like about being a resident of the Little Apple? So uh, we moved here 10, 10 now, maybe 11 years ago, um, with the belief that we were going to live here for just a few years, the probably four, three or four, and the motivation was, so one of my requirements in, in our household is that when our when your kid wants a car, in case we have two daughters, our daughters need to get a job. And our youngest daughter, Alex, uh, got a job sweeping floors and cleaning pens in a vet clinic. Lo and behold, in addition to getting a paycheck, she also discovered that she wanted to be a veterinarian. And that meant, uh, again, both kids uh, went to, to school here. Kelsey, our oldest daughter, has a degree in political science and Spanish uh, from K-State. And Alex has an animal science degree. But now there was another four years in her uh, time at K-State. Uh, Rob and I decided we'd buy a house in Manhattan. We'd move here. It would make my travel easier to Washington, D.C. I guess we've never said that. Uh, we never moved to Washington, D.C. I've been on an airplane every Monday, every Thursday, Friday for a long time now. About we see, 40, And we see you here every weekend. About 40 yeah. some weeks out of the year. And... Uh, with Manhattan's increasing and uh, very valuable air service and its proximity to Kansas City, and it, this became a, an ease for my travel. 
but it was primarily designed to buy a house and have Alex live in our basement, cut down on the costs uh, that come from veterinary medical school, reduce the student loan debt, and see if we could help her work her way through. She always intended to return to Hayes to practice for the vet she worked for, sweeping floors and cleaning pens. And uh, lo and behold, uh, she decided to buy a practice in Manhattan, and uh, we're still here. And then even perhaps more importantly, uh, she bought Candlewood. And even more importantly, she gave us uh, first a grandchild and then a second grandchild, a grandson and now a granddaughter. And so um, that plan to return to Hayes has been put on hold for now, uh, I don't know, six years beyond the four years we intended to be here. Well, and we're glad that you're here and 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 hope that you stay. And uh, that's so one of my jobs as the chamber president is to make sure that happens. So whatever we need to do, let me know. Jason, we, we like Manhattan. I would tell you that uh, I've always been a part of whatever community I've lived in and known most, most everybody in town. This is a little bigger place for me than what I'm accustomed to. And it's difficult for me to uh, get t- to be that part of the community. I miss this. I used to know kind of everything that was going on and, and uh, in, involved in much of it. But I'm only here on mostly Saturday nights and and Sundays. We've got well acquainted with the folks we know from church, but uh, we're still working at trying to get a, getting acquainted with everybody else. Robert does a better job than I do. Just not enough time spent in Manhattan to continue that effort. Um, so a couple of just big picture issues. Uh, we're not going to delve in, like I said, into any of the sort of hot topics right now in DC, but a couple of things that are really important to Manhattan. And one is Fort Riley, and it's such a big part of our economy. And you're able to help and shape a lot of what happens there in your role on, a, on military appropriations. And um, so what are some of the accomplishments that we've been able to achieve to make the quality of life better for Fort Riley soldiers? And how can we work together to do more? Uh, there is, a, a, you know, Manhattan provides a certain set of issues that are even more important to Manhattan than another issue or another town. And Fort Riley is one of those. Fort Riley matters to all of Kansas, but the future of Fort Riley determines in many ways the future of Manhattan, future of Junction City, this area. And so I've worked to put myself in positions in which we are fully engaged in military and defense issues and fully engaged in Fort Riley. And um, I I'm a defense appropriator, which means we make the initial appropriations decisions on what gets funded at the U.S. Department of Defense. I chair the Senate uh, Military Communities Caucus, which is a group of senators who come from places that have military installations, and we work at trying to improve the relationship between the community and the and the military installation. And what do we do to to help those communities who often have lots of uh, property that isn't subject to property taxes. How do we help that community have the resources? The airport is a good example of when we can help Manhattan and we can help Fort Riley and create a better future for both. Uh, that is an example of, of what, we, what we pay attention to. My goal has been to see that we get a third brigade at Fort Riley. Now is not the time that's going to happen. Our challenge is lack of recruitable young men and women to enter the military and the army is suffering the most of the three branches. And so our efforts have been long-term and we worked hard to get Irwin Army Hospital completed. Uh, We worked hard to bring more schools to Fort Riley. I think we're on our third or fourth elementary school for the local school district on post. 
Urban Army Hospital is a state-of-the-art hospital. And most recently, we're focused on housing. And this last appropriation bill includes the money for planning and design for more barracks uh, at Fort Riley for single soldiers. It is the, the, my theory is that if we can make sure the infrastructure at Fort Riley is top-notch and, and meets the needs of Fort Riley and its soldiers and their families, that we stand a good chance of increasing the role that Fort Riley plays in defending our country. We, we work at bringing out General McConville, the Army Chief of Staff, was my guest at Fort Riley, I don't know, six months ago. We work at bringing those kind of people to Fort Riley because we have to overcome this. You're out there in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and a lot of what the Army needs today is rapid response. And we need to convince and make certain it's known how capable we are at Fort Riley. Jason, you mentioned a moment ago about people who retired in Manhattan. One of the assets we have, Fort Riley, allows for lots of soldiers as they leave active duty to make the decision that they and their families will remain here. And I hear it all the time. Uh, people who tell me they had, you know, they grew up in Mississippi or Maine or Washington State, and they got, they came to Fort Riley and decide this is where I want to retire when I leave the military. And so we also work on the retired military side and the veteran side to try to make sure that veterans who have uh, experienced time at Fort Riley realize that they have an ally and supporter and communities that are welcoming to them. You talked briefly about, and I don't, I don't want to let the, let it go without sort of delving and explaining exactly how important the airport project was, because uh, we are in the process of having our runway um, basically rebuilt, so the airport will be closed for three months. And FAA pays to do that up to 90%. And, but they'll only pay to do what they determine is the need. And it's the need uh, of the FAA, not necessarily the need of all the other people in the community, including the Army. And so um, the FAA agreed to rebuild the runway only to 100 feet wide. We're currently 150 feet wide. And the 150 feet wide allows the transports that Fort Riley uses to land in Manhattan. So if we hadn't have gotten the runway to 150 foot wide, the transports now have to go to Salina or Topeka or somewhere else. And it, and it devalues our ability to be responsive that you mentioned. And you helped create a program uh, at the Pentagon called the Defense Community Infrastructure Program that addresses these issues specifically. And we were able to make an application. We got $5 million, which is enough to take it the full 150. And so we're now going to see that runway being uh, rebuilt to the full 150. Jason, thank you for knowing that. And uh, we did. We created, I mean, this is an example of where working together with other members of Congress who have uh, a fort or a military installation in their district is to create a program that, that provides grants to communities in that circumstance. And the, the, this grant program was utilized then after we got it passed into law, we appropriated the money for it. So step one is to get the bill that allows it. Step two is to put the money into it. And then step three is to get Manhattan's airport to be a, a recipient of those, of those dollars. And that is, I mean, it was, it's very useful for me to be able to say whenever, I, I can remember the days in which you're talking to Pentagon brass and you're saying, but we have Topeka and Forbes Field just down the road. It is much better to be able to say we have Manhattan Regional Airport right adjacent to Fort Riley, and we can get in and out with the speed that our country needs for defending our nation. Thank you for that, and I, I think it's something that people should recognize. So the other uh, big news or big federal project that we have in the community, of course, is MBAF, and at the time 
of this recording. We're anticipating the ribbon cutting soon. And um, so as someone that has been involved in that project, either as a congressman or a senator, for the entire duration of the site selection and all the, all the appropriations, the ultimately the construction, and now the opening, uh, how satisfying will that moment be for you? This will be, you know, high five moments for a lot of people, uh, including me, but uh, this community, the state of Kansas, um, there's just been a lot of effort that's gone into MBAF. And in, in many ways, it's still, it's still surprising. Um, that that in-bath facility was desired by dozens of places across the country. And it was a presumably determined on the merits, but I could never say that politics doesn't have something to do with those decisions. And they all came together in a sweet spot and Manhattan was chosen and Manhattan succeeded in the in the battles. Uh, the, the, there were lawsuits filed by other states trying to get that facility there. And we have a lot of opportunity for growth in this community. Not only are we doing something in, at InBath, will we be doing something at InBath that helps better protect our country from natural and uh, and human uh, efforts to to do damage to our food supply, to animal health. Uh, but we will be doing something that creates an opportunity for uh, job creation in this part of Kansas for a long time. One of my goals, uh, just as a citizen, perhaps not even as a, as a senator, we're an agricultural state. We're an energy producing state. We manufacture lots of airplanes. We have lots of kind of components of what our economy is. But it's always seemed to me that if we could enhance our capability of not only educating, but keeping in our state, those kids who like science and mathematics and engineering research, uh, the KU Cancer Center, sounds like I'm changing this, the subject, but that was the, the, that and InBath were the first two attempts on, that I was involved in, in trying to create opportunities for kids to pursue careers in science. And in the process, kind of change the nature of our state's future and bring us forward to never walking away from those other things. But this is a whole new realm for us to attract business and people and retain, retain young people here and bring new people to the state. Yeah. And I think we're going to continue to see opportunities generated because of that being the anchor and, and all the good work that happened in that. So thank you for that. So we're done now with the easy part okay. of the interview. We're going to move to the to what we call the rapid fire. All right, so we have 10 questions. You answer as fast as you can and get it it helps us get to know you a little better. So, are you ready? Ready. Okay. If you could only watch one television show for the rest of your life, what show would that be? Maybe Seinfeld. Seinfeld? There's a lot of people that feel that way, so Um, I never saw it when it was original. I only saw it in its re rerun times. And uh, for a long time we were hooked on watching it all the time. I know a lot of people. And almost like, every day something happens. It's a Seinfeld uh, circumstance. Uh, my, my wife likes to point those out too. What was your first job? Working in a hardware store, uh, coast to coast in Plainville, yeah. Kansas. You know, I also had a paper route. So that was actually preceded the coast to coast store. So a paper route. Who inspires you the most and why? Broadly, just the, the nature of our state. It's people. Um, you know, think of the hardships that people face every day and certainly our ancestors and there's a lot of inspiration that comes from, from that and how people survived in difficult times. And we think we live in difficult times today. And so many people experience so much, many more challenges. My dad, a World War II veteran away from his wife for, you know, 
three three and a half years. Um, volunteered. Um, that's an inspiration as well. Uh, those who served. Let me let me do this. So one of the reasons that I, I'm not a veteran, but there's probably uh, no committee that we spend more time on working on it. And I mean, in Republican days, I chair it. In Democratic majority days, I'm the lead Republican on veterans. And it comes from growing up at a time in which the Vietnam War was going on in, in our lives. And I happen to be 16 instead of 18. If you're a year or two older than me, you served in Vietnam. And uh, it is the reason that I'm trying to repay uh, for all those who served when I saw what they experienced when many of them returned home from their military service. And so uh, that inspires me. Uh, there's, a, there's a long list. If you talk about political figures, I know that m many Kansans would love to have Bob Dole and Nancy Kassebaum as their senators. And uh, both of them are people that I grew up working with and for. Well, of course, in your position, you get to meet a lot of those inspirational people. So we'll give you leeway to, to, right. to expand that. So what is the most interesting place you traveled? Uh, this job allows me to travel and, and perhaps the maybe, I don't know whether interesting is the right word, but the highlight of travel was uh, going to Iraq during the Iraq war, being on a Black Hawk helicopter. Kachina Gear, who is now a local citizen of this community, uh, was reporting back to her parents in a in uh, Hutchinson, Kansas, and the Hutchinson News was reporting in the paper her experiences as a uh, member of the army in Iraq. And I was with General Petraeus and I tell him, I, I read in the paper, there's a Black Hawk helicopter pilot here from Kansas, and I wondered if you knew her. And he said, well, let's ask the pilot. The pilot uh, turns out to be her. And then I went on further with General Petraeus and said that, so I read in the paper that she'd been injured in a Humvee attack and an hour later, a general's aide taps my shoulder, hands me a purple heart, and we pin a purple heart on Katrina in Iraq, in Mosul, uh, Iraq. Uh, that's like a, a highlight of perhaps of travel. That's a, that's a great answer. Um, and one, again, you have a lot of experiences that the rest of us don't get to do, and so that's a great answer. What is the one thing that instantly makes your day better? Uh, in Washington, D.C., it's when Kansans come visit. That is a great answer. Aside from necessities, what one thing could you not go a day without? I'm a huge fan of cheese and ice cream. That's, uh, that's probably the, the trivial things that I couldn't do without. Do you prefer working remotely or in the office? I despise working remotely. I want Zoom out of my life. Uh, I hated the time in COVID in which that was the only way to do it. And I think that we're missing something as people uh, work from home. How do you put a team together? Uh, if you're never in the same room together. And I'm going to tell a quick story because I've, I've, I've wondered if I'd get a spot to tell this story. And, but I think it's important because I think it talks a lot about how you feel about your constituents. So um, at one point, I had, I had reached out to your staff and said, if the senator ever has a few minutes, I'd like to grab his ear and talk to him about a few things going on in Manhattan. And and you are one of those folks who you, your schedules kind of come together late and so we understand that if we may get a call the day before or day of and say, Senator, has some time, would you, would you be interested in, in taking that? Uh, and sometimes it's, we, Senator wants to come to one of your meetings and talk. I mean, you know, we, we try to accommodate that. And so I got a call um, probably from Kristen the day before said, you know, Senator has some time tomorrow. Would you, would you be interested in coming by the office? I said, absolutely. I'll be there. Um, so that night I started feeling bad. Next morning I woke up and actually the, 
Uh, the reason I tested was because I was supposed to go see my mother that day, but um, tested for COVID and I was positive. And so I called your office and said, uh, I am so sorry, but I have COVID and obviously I don't want to expose the senator. So we can either reschedule or we can do Zoom. And they said, uh, oh, no, the center doesn't like to do Zoom. So we'll reschedule. And so uh, so I realized right then that we're probably not going to have many Zoom meetings. But the one thing that I do want to say, and I have I've told this story a hundred times because it's the first time it's ever happened to me anyway. Uh, about a week later, I get a call on my phone. And it's a it's an unknown number. And usually I don't answer those. So I don't know what made me decide to answer this one. And uh, it was like, Jason, Senator Moran. And I said, oh, how are you doing? He goes, are you feeling okay? I was just checking on you. <laughs> and I thought, uh, here's a U.S. Senator checking to see how if I'm feeling okay. So I, I just wanted to tell you publicly, A, how much I appreciate it, but B, that just doesn't happen in other places. And so- What I learned from that conversation is you were really only caring about your mother, which makes sense. Well- I, That's all right. Well, you know, but you know how you. that works. But but I, 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 don't, I don't like Zoom and we've used it and used it and used it, but I want, it's hard to pull people together over that- that medium. But I just think it's important to, to point out when people go above and beyond, and I appreciated that. What job did you want as a kid? I, my initial desire was to be a geologist. And in fourth grade, I wrote a 100-page book on geology. And So you, in fourth grade, you wrote a 100-page book yeah, on Yeah, it was geology. colored and things cut out of magazines. And Is it, what, what was the impetus for something like that? Did you know somebody that was a geologist? No, I didn't know anybody that's a geologist, but I was I was interested in the in the history, just uh, you know how the Earth uh, was created, and I and of course growing up in that part of Kansas, oil is a significant component of the economy. My dad worked in the oil patch, and so knowing how to find oil was, I think, part of that in my mind. And I probably had seven different majors when I was in college trying to figure out where I was going to land, and I didn't get a degree in political science. We, um, growing up in Oklahoma and, and the seventies as a, as a kid, I knew a lot of geologists. Then in the eighties, I knew a lot of former geologists. So a good you, point. Yeah. So it's probably a good idea. You went into what you went into. So what are you currently reading? Chip Wars. Uh, Chris Miller's the author and it's the battle of trying to make certain that the U S does not lose its technological advantages or dis or we get rid of our disadvantages in our relationship with China and the rest of the world. We are manufacturing way too many things, including chips uh, that uh, are important to our national defense and to our economy in places that we have little control over and they are our adversaries. And of course, we're making some advancements in Kansas and our ability to attract those kind of companies here. Absolutely. So that's good. If you could write a book, I guess other than geology, if you could write a book about anything, what would it be about? A couple of things. I've, I've thought about writing a, a, a more personal biography of Senator Dole but I need a ghostwriter to do anything. So probably never happens. Uh, and I've also been fascinated by uh, what was going on, just probably because of the time in, I grew, in which I was growing up, what was going on in civil rights across the country. I mean, I grew up at a time in which Martin Luther King was assassinated, Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated, there were riots, uh, the fight over the Vietnam War, the battles of right and wrong. And I, I, I would be interested to know in how Kansas behaved uh, in race relations and how the what Kansas role was it was played, what role Kansas played in uh, its congressional delegation in advancing the cause of civil rights. That would be interesting because, of course, Kansas was the center of that in uh, in its early days, right? Right. We, we I mean, Kansas came about as 
part of a you know effort to find some common ground to keep the country together. And we were, came in as a free state in a big battle. And how did that translate in the 1960s for how Kansans felt? I mean, we had protests and counters in Wichita drugstores as they did elsewhere. How, how did we react? Again, I don't know that anybody would buy any of those books, but it's the two things I've thought about over the years of, I wonder if I could write a book on this. I will pledge to you, uh, either one of those books I would buy. All right. All right. Well, Senator, thank you so much for agreeing to be on with us today. And your time is very precious and, and we appreciate you taking a few minutes to hang out with us and, and let us learn a little more about you. It's a real pleasure, Jason, to, to know you and to be with you and to work with you and the chamber members to try to make this community a better place. I appreciate the opportunities that you've given me to play in a little bit in that role. And I appreciate the, the opportunity I've had to, to, to work with you in the chamber. And it's, uh, I wish all of our citizens of this community the very best and uh, look forward to trying to represent them well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Think MHK, a podcast produced by the Manhattan Area Chamber of Commerce. If you enjoyed the Think MHK podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe and share it out on your social media channels. Feel free to reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at the Manhattan Area Chamber of Commerce.